All right, well, I've got a little bit of the hay fever in my throat. So if you can endure me talking like this, we're going to talk about Mechum this morning. So, are you ready? We got some quizzes. Those, that's, that's quizzes, excuse me. We have some quizzes this morning. And here's your first one. Can anybody recognize who those people are? You know, everything was working fine until Brent prayed. Let's try this again. Okay, Brent. Help. Help me. Your window is opening. What do you think happened? We lost the signal. Yeah, it was... um, Um, It could be be upstairs because... No, it's down here. Okay, I'm going to start this back up. Here, these are more announcements. You hit fade to black. Fade to black? Yeah, don't do that. I like black. (laughs) Slimming color. Okay. Quiz. You all failed the first time, so I'm going to give you a second shot. Does anybody recognize these guys? (laughs) They're not the Beatles. From Manchester, England, Peter Herman Williams, Derek Hawkins, Paul Hill, Keith He kind of dances like they do on Charlie Brown, you know. The... Second verse, same as the first? Why do I bring that up today? Because last week, no, two weeks ago, we did Nahum. And the internet went kaput, and it didn't record, and nobody gets to see it, and we have a whole lot of people who watch off the internet. So Brent sent me an email. He said, we've got some choices. Choice one, you just show up and do it again, and we'll film it and stick it on the internet. I thought, I don't like that. He said, choice number two, you just reteach it. I thought, well, I don't like that. He said, choice number three, come up with your own option. I thought, I like that. So we're in choice number three. So let me tell you what it entails. We're going to open the book of Nahum up. We're going to cover a couple of things that we didn't cover the first time. But then we're going to cover a whole lot of additional material I didn't get to last time. Fair? 
And it's not like everybody remembers all this stuff on Nahum anyway. So, for those of you in memory land, second verse, Amos the first, Henry the eighth, I am. Um, the book begins an oracle concerning Nineveh. And this word oracle in the Hebrew is an interesting word because it conveys the idea of a burden as well as, as something that's going to be said. But within the oracle that's pronounced is the burden of needing to pronounce it. In other words, it, it, it's, it's as if something weighs so heavily on your shoulders that you have to say something about it. And that's this idea that's behind this book. And it's right there in the Hebrew. It's right front and center. First word, an oracle. So what was the burden that weighed so heavy upon Nahum that he had to say something about it? And that's the question that we asked. And last time we discussed this, two weeks ago, this was the outline we went through. We asked what in the world was going on, how did Nahum plug in, and what are our points for home? I want to follow a little bit of the same outline this week. We do need to talk a little bit about what in the world was going on, but I won't do it in as much detail. And then we're going to look at how did Nahum plug in, but we're going to do it with different passages than we did last time. And we're going to integrate the points for home in the same thing. So let's start out with what in the world was going on. This is a book that's, even though it's part of Hebrew scriptures, which makes it part of Christian scriptures, it's a burden, it's an oracle that's addressed to a foreign city. And that foreign city of Nineveh is the capital of the world's largest empire, that had ever existed in the Mediterranean world up to that point in time. And I say Mediterranean world because my Far Eastern history, going back that far of the various dynasties in China, is pretty weak. So I don't know in terms of size whether or not there may have been some dynasty in China that was a bigger empire, and I don't want to act like we're the center of the world with our history and our text. But the Assyrian Empire was greater than Egypt had ever been. It was greater than than the Hittites had ever been. It was greater than any world power up to that point in the Middle East and the Near East. And the British have reconstructed a great deal of this. If you ever get to the British Museum in London, you must see the Assyrian uh, rooms because they've rebuilt so much of this and, and supplemented. And, and the, a lot of the archaeology, which in Assyria is called Assyriological archaeology. It's the archaeology of Assyria. People who study Assyria, ancient Assyria, are Assyriologists. So much of the archaeology that was done were done by British explorers in the 1800s who were able to get so much of the archaeological treasures and take them back to England. So you've got this massive expanse and massive corpus of material. 
and you can go in. And this really is a pretty good portrayal of what the main Assyriology throne room looks like because this would have been the entrance to the throne of the emperor, the, the king of Assyria. And Azurbanipal is the one we'll be looking at in specifics. But these are massive stone obelisks that were hauled back. And, and these are the size of people, which shows you the size of these obelisks, which sat on each side of the entrance toward the throne. And so uh, uh, people who came in would be in awe immediately over this. And these supposedly, these stones had magical powers to keep evil spirits away. So they served as spiritual bodyguards to the king. The king had his own private um, uh, army, private police force, private secret service bodyguards that would specifically protect him physically. But these were spiritual guardians for the king. And so he's got these. Now, his empire at the time, he's conquered Egypt. You say, well, not over there. Nobody lived over there. That's desert. All of Egypt lives practically within flooding and and usefulness of the Nile. Everything else is not that useful. But from upper Egypt, which is in lower Egypt, to lower Egypt, which is in upper Egypt. (laughs) Hey, we eat jumbo shrimp. Um, so, so upper Egypt, they they would think about going up the Nile. See, that's why it's called upper Egypt and the Nile dumps out here. So if you're down near the mouth of the Nile, you're in lower Egypt. If you go up the Nile, you go to upper Egypt. So you've got Egypt all part at this point of the Assyrian empire. You've got the north of Sinai, you've got Israel and and uh, the Philistine lands and all of this over into Jordan. You've got it all the way up into what's modern Lebanon, but ancient Phoenicia, modern Syria, not to be confused with Assyria, modern Syria. You've got all of that, all of this up into Turkey, a good bit of southeastern Turkey. You've got it up into um, uh, Assyria, all the way down into Babylonia, all the way over to Elam. This is Iraq. This is Iran. Um, uh, somewhere up here, I, you've just got a massive empire. And the king, at the time of Nahum, at the time of this greatness, at least I should say, the king is Azurbanipal. He called himself the king of the world. And he's constantly has reliefs carved into mountains, uh, not mountains, carved into rock of, of him as this awesome king of battle. But he was also very erudite. What is erudite, you say? Erudite is someone who's very good with words. He could read and write, which was rare for a king. And so many of the what, what would be an ancient portrait, even though it's carved into rock. So many of the ancient carvings, portraits of him, he would commission, they would always stick a stylus, actually two, into his belt. Those are writing instruments in ancient time. He wanted everyone to know throughout all history, 
he could read and write all by himself. And the writing that they did then was in clay tablets by and large with these wedges that would wedge out. We call it cuneiform. Cuneiform just means wedge-shaped. So he was able, these are his little wedgers. Um, you know, people today call wedgers those things you stick in your shoe to look higher. Back then, these uh, wedgers were what they used to, to do wedge work, to, to write with. And so he kept two of them in his belt for all of his pictures. So everybody knew he could read and write all by himself. If you look at it, many of his times, here he is on the face of a seal that was used to mark documents and to mark things officially. And you can see he's slaying a lion there. You get that a lot with him. Here's another relief, him slaying the lion. By the way, again, his wedgers right there. He's so proud of them. He's slaying a lion. In um, the mythology of Assyria, the lion represented the wild chaos of the world. So lions were not tame. Um, my wife is a cat whisperer. You can find the most vicious cat in the world. And for some reason, my wife's able to not only talk to them, but have them eating out of her lap. Um, but I dare say even the best cat whisperer could not tame a lion. Lions were untamable cats. And so this lion represented within Assyrian mythology the chaos and the untamability of the world. But what does all of the king's portraits almost show him doing? Slaying the lion. He tames the untamable. He puts into order chaos. And that's part of his charge by the main God. Now his name, Azurbanipal, the Azure part is the name of the principal God that he worshipped, Ashur. Assyria itself gets its name from the same God, Ashur. So this is a man named after the God. You say, isn't that weird that they would name their kids after God? No, Hebrew names all over the place have the name of God, Yahweh, built into them. Usually it's Yah at the end of the name, Eliyah, Eliyah which is Yahweh is my king. You know, so you get Elijah, is the way we would say it. But but it's very common back then to build God names into the name of a child. So you've got a, a, a king named after a God, and that God has charged the king to tame the untamable, to conquer the chaos in the world, which he took seriously and went to do. And so you've got relief after relief after relief of him slaying the animals as he rides out into battle and into war. He would stage events where they brought in live lions. There's one of the tablets where he's talking about his incredible ability to tame the world and to defeat chaos. And he says, you know, I can kill a lion with one shot. Now, you say, well, yeah, he's right there. You're right there. Well, I got news for you. If you got a lion rushing at you, that's a pretty big deal to sit there. It's not like he's got an AK-47 bow and arrow where it shoots like, da, 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 da. I mean, it's like, twing, and he don't hit it in just the right place. 
he's going to be lucky to get a second twing before he gets twung. <laughs> Look at all these guys. They're behind him. He's got a shield. You'd think the shield guy would at least be out here in front of the king. Nah, kings, get behind me. I'll protect you. I'll take care of all of you and let the world see. I'm killing lion after lion. It's pretty typical of him. Uh, Assyria did not come to own that world because everybody was volunteering to be part of the Assyrian Empire. The taxes were large. The, the um, uh, requirements for military service were large. But it was Assyria that really came up with the world's first dedicated army. And the army would include some of the king's own protection detail because the king would go into battle with the army. But they had a dedicated army as well as mercenaries they bought and paid for. But even more importantly, when they conquered countries, they would make those men come work within the army to secure the safety of their families because if the men didn't, then they would lose everything at home. But they, you can see them going into battle. They, they figured out how to use battering rams, siege ramps, ladders. They even figured out how to use cranes and things of that nature to help them in battle to conquer all these various cities. You can see them going up with their shields. You can see all of their enemies falling down dead. This is the military might that was Assyria. And it scared everyone to death. It scared King Hezekiah. You, we can read about that in Isaiah and, and in the history books of the Bible. But it's amazing. And, and the, the, the Assyrian king at the time was Sennacherib. It was a different Assyrian king. But the Assyrian might was huge. Now this is... Um, an artistic rendering that's supposed to be fairly accurate. Uh, it's used by the British Museum and other places. This is the great city of Nineveh. This was the capital city. The prophecy, the oracle, the burden of Nahum was written against, Assyria, against Nineveh as the capital city of Assyria where the king would rule from. His palace was unrivaled in history. The hanging gardens there were so spectacular that some believe that they were mislabeled by the Greek historians as hanging gardens of Babylon. But in fact, the hanging gardens here were immense. And so uh, the pen is mightier than the sword. Again, the reference to the fact that he not only had the, the ability to read and write, but he had assimilated the world's largest library. And because those tablets are clay tablets, that library is still around. Uh, it was it was dug out. Uh, Flanders found it in the 1850s, and it's been excavated. And so many of the tablets are still not translated. If you want to get a degree in Assyriology, and you want to go translate those little puppies over at the British Museum, they'd be happy as a clam because they're not all translated yet. There are so many of them. He had he had enough of those tablets to make your local theological library salivate. <laughs> This is what these tablets look like today. Now, this is a big blow-up. Most of these tablets aren't any bigger than, than your fist. 
and and it's really hard to read. I mean, if this fella could really read that stuff in an age before glasses, he had really good eyesight because it's really, really hard to read and hard to digest. But all of these little wedge shapes are sounds. And they had, uh, I don't know, 30 or 40, David, you might know better than me. I don't remember. I studied just enough cuneiform to be able to write my name. And, and that's it. Though when I get uh, to a stage in life where I've got time, it's on my list to learn Akkadian and, and to be able to do this. But this is, um, this is typical. And they'd write sometimes all the way around the clay tablet. We've got a couple of clay tablets at the library in the display case if you ever want to see them. In fact, funny story, Peter Williams reads a little better cuneiform than I do, uh, a lot better. And uh, um, though he's not a cuneiform reader per se, but the first time he came to my library, or to our library, I should say, he comes up to the display cabinet and he's looking at it and he tugs me on the sleeve and he says, I, I don't know that you care, but... Uh, that tablet's upside down. <laughs> Here's another one. This is one of the flood story that is told as the Epic of Gilgamesh. Uh, and it's the story of Utnapushtim and the, the gods that decide to flood and tell him to build a boat. And uh, it's really interesting. There are some real stark differences so the world gets flooded and after the flood the gods are famished because it never occurred to them that if their flood takes place nobody's going to be around to sacrifice to them and the aroma of the sacrifices was food to the gods so they're buzzing around like flies looking for someone to sacrifice to them because they're starving big difference between them and god um anyway um they had a postal system uh, they, they had a, a, the, the first rapid transit where someone would ride a horse till it dropped type stuff to get throughout the Assyrian Empire. Um, they would use eunuchs as their governors by and large by the time you get to Ashurbanipal because the governors, they didn't want them self-propagating into popular families because that would challenge their power and might. They had figured out a way to become the world's greatest superpower and had been that for hundreds of years. They had a system set up. They had the army. They had a postal system. They had eunuchs so that you didn't have tribal leaders take over tribal territories and challenge them. And so it seemed kind of odd that there would be a prophecy that comes out from God, Yahweh, that says to them, you're about to be destroyed. And within a period of 20 years, they're gone. The Assyrian Empire is wiped out and no more and never resurrects in history. 20 years from king of the mountain to six feet under. It's kind of um, unthinkable. And yet God saw it all like it was history to him. And so you've got this. That's what's going on in the world. Now, Nahum is coming and he is prophesying that this Assyrian empire is going to crumble. And that's the gist of his prophecy. 
So I want to talk about how he plugs in, and I want to mix up in it the points for home. And these will be new passages that we didn't get to last week. So we'll pick up with Nahum 1.14. Yahweh, the Lord, has given commandment about you. This is to Nineveh. No more shall your name be perpetuated. And when I say Nineveh, it's to the king who reigns in Nineveh. It's to the Assyrian Empire. No more shall your name be perpetuated. Do you know how much that must rile someone who has spent so much time getting him carved into all these stones? Do you know how much that must rile someone who always has their styluses in their belt so that the world will remember forever that they could read and write? Someone who gets everybody behind them when they're killing the lions? No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. The Assyrians were the first ones in the Middle East to develop iron. They ushered in the Iron Age. Before that, the metal du jour was bronze. Bronze is very bendable. Bronze is not, it's easier to make in some ways, but it's not very reliable for a weapon. It, it just, it rots easier. Uh, bronze uh, corrodes easier. Iron is much stronger. It's much harder. It's much more um, uh, dangerous. It can sharpen to a sharper edge that will hold the edge longer. And the Assyrians not only figured out how to make iron, but they figured out how to make it cheaply. So they had the best weapons. They had iron and metal. They could have the king engraved in the metal shield. Um, But he says, I'm going to cut off your carved image you're so stinking proud of whether it's uh, uh, carved on rock or the metal image. I'll make your grave, for you are vile. That's a pretty stiff prophecy, isn't it? By the way, God was correct. They were, the king was vile. Right, here's another relief. Now, this is King Azurbanipal. He's reclining on his really cool furniture. Look at his furniture. This is not like Ikea. This has got like all these little intricate carvings. It's got all this ornate. Look, these bevel down to a point, down toward the bottom. I mean, this is like fancy schmancy with the little wing stuff happening here and all. He's reclining on this really cool piece of furniture. Now look at this. This is his queen. So she gets to sit just a little bit lower than he does. She get always, everybody looks up to him. He's elevated above everybody else in the carving. Even the queen looks up to him. And almost seems as she's drinking to be offering to him. But you've got the queen here. Her furniture's not as fancy as his, but it's still pretty good. It's still not like Walmart. And um, 
I did that so people who follow Ikea don't get mad at me for like just saying that. Now, these are people who, do you know what she's doing? She's swatting flies. She's keeping flies off the queen. You don't have a fly swatter for the king. Flies are afraid of him. But the queen's got fly swatter. Now, this person is bringing food. Do you know what this person's doing? Swatting flies from the food. You don't want to get your mango relish showing up with, wondering, gee, is that pepper or are those gnats? So they're, they're swatting the flies from the food they're bringing to serve the king and the queen. But now... This is all being done in their garden. This is a tree. I'm going to zoom in on this tree for a minute. Do you know what that ornament is on the tree? It's the head of the king of Atom. Ashurbanipal was famous for beheading the kings who opposed him and hanging them from the trees in his garden. Now you know when you figure there's this dead head hanging right here, why they got fly swatters for the food. Because the flies are clearly going to be buzzing around decapitatio here and bring the food. He decorates his garden with the heads of opposing kings while he sits over here in the lap of luxury. And so, yeah, I'll make your grave. Because you are vile. You're insignificant. Kalal is the Hebrew word for vile. You're contemptible. And actually, the, the word itself, kalal, here it is in kalota is the form here. Um, but the, the word itself means lightweight. You think you're something big. You think you're king of the world. You think you're the biggest thing there's ever been. You're a lightweight, buddy, Ruth. Um, God forbid any of us ever walk in arrogance and haughtiness before him. You can take the most famous, incredible, awesome, powerful, richest, Dude or dudette on the planet. And they're lightweights compared to Almighty God. Heaven forbid any of us should ever forget that. I'm going to make your grave. You are a contemptible lightweight. You know, history is built one day at a time. Today, you are building history. Whether your name is known forever or not, you're building history. Nachum said, the Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated from the house of your gods. I'll cut off your carved image, the metal image. I'll make your grave your vile. History is being built one day at a time. 
I want to show you a really cool photo I got off the web. This is the tombstone. It's a dual tombstone of a husband and wife. Mary Talley. You see, it says Mary Talley. She lived from 1788 to 1865, the year the Civil War ended. Her husband was Dr. Henry. Dr. Henry Talley. Don't worry, Miss Carol. I know Dr. Henry sometimes seems to you this old. But this is not a prior marriage of his. This is a different Dr. Henry. Dr. Henry Talley from 1778 to 1862. And it's just kind of neat. They got married and they had a kid, a daughter named Mary Talley. She was born in 1821. I can't tell you a thing about her beyond what I put up there. Well, I can tell you one more thing about her. I can tell you she married a fellow. His name was Matthew Dixon. He was born in 1817 and he died in 1878. I can also tell you about them that they had a kid named James Dixon. James Dixon didn't die until 1920. 1841 to 1920. Now, James Dixon, if you want to check the records, you'll see I'm correct that he married Eugenia Russell. 1848 to 1935. Every one of these people built history one day at a time. They gave birth to a woman named Ellen Ora Dixon. 1874 to 1948. She married a fella named William Bray. 1856 to 1938, they gave birth to my great-grandmother Davis, who gave birth to my grandmother Catherine, who gave birth to my mom, who gave birth to me, my sister Catherine, our sister Holly, and then Becky and I, I mean, I was there when the birth happened. I was the dad to Sarah. But all of those generations and everything that's happened are all part of the history that got built one day at a time, even if we don't know the names or if we don't know anything beyond the names. But these are real people and real history. Just like in Nahum, these are real people and this is real history. That really happened. God did exactly what God said he would do. And you and I have a point for home on this. The point from home is pretty simple. Every day, everything we're doing might seem to be small and insignificant. But if you ever know about putting Legos together, you know that you can get these Legos and it'll step by step tell you how to put them together. I'm not going to play the whole thing because even sped up as fast as I could speed it up, it takes too long. But when this fellow's through building one brick at a time, do you know what he's got? He's got the Titanic. That's what you and I are about. And sometimes we get lost in it because sometimes we're just so busy or sometimes we're not reflective enough. Or sometimes we think, well, today doesn't really count. I'll start worrying about history tomorrow. But every day you and I spend, we're not only developing history outside in the world, we're developing history in our brain. What we feed ourselves, 
how we let ourselves behave, where we take delight that sends serotonin levels up and happy land in our brain. All of the different things that we do are building history and building who we are. And that's why it's so critical that we build history with the Lord. That we wash over ourselves with Scripture. That we prayerfully seek God to transform us into the image and likeness of His Son. Not a day can be lost. We don't want a Lego piece misplaced. We want it built just right. And so I ask you, how are you building today? Are you familiar with the term, keep the faith? You better say yes, Miss Carolyn. You better say yes, Dr. Henry. It was a huge phrase in the civil rights movement. Keep the faith. Keep the faith. May not happen right now, but keep the faith. May not happen today, but keep the faith. May not happen tomorrow, but keep the faith. Keep the faith. Keep the faith. And it's not an exclusive to the civil rights movement. I mean, heavens, Bon Jovi put out an album and a song, Keep the Faith. Got some decent lyrics to it, too. I've been walking in the footsteps of society's lies. I don't like what I see no more sometimes. Ooh, I need to send him an email about double negatives. Um, I don't like what I see no more sometimes. I wish that I was blind. Sometimes I wait forever to stand out in the rain so no one sees me crying, trying to wash away the pain. Faith, you know you're going to live through the rain. Lord, you've got to keep the faith. Don't you know it's never too late? Right now we've got to keep the faith. Faith, don't you let your love turn to hate. Love, you've got to keep the faith. Keep the faith. How are you living today? How are you building your history? Keep the faith. Do it in faith. Trust God. Okay? All right, let's keep going in Nahum. Nahum 1.15. Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feast, Judah. Fulfill your vows. For never again shall the worthless pass through you. He's utterly cut off. Don't you worry about the king of Assyria anymore. Nahum there is doing something pretty cool, by the way. He's quoting an earlier prophet, Isaiah. He's grabbing something Isaiah said. Because Nahum says, Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. You can go to Isaiah, and Isaiah 52, 7 says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. And that's why we can keep the faith. Because God reigns. Now, how's your bun of Paul's in your life? Are contemptible lightweights compared to God. There is nothing in your life that can even remotely stand a chance against the God who is faithful, who brings salvation to his people. 
We cannot lose track of that. And you may be saying, well, how do I keep the faith as I'm walking through all this garbage? I'm going to give you two simple instructions. They come from, Mom, you hadn't left yet, have you? No, she's still there. They come from a song that Mom's often fond of referencing that I sang evidently when I was three or four years old because I really liked it at church. It's in the hymnal. Trust and obey. When we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. Let us do his goodwill. He abides with us still and with all who will trust and obey. Just trust God and be obedient to his word. That's keeping the faith and that's building history one Lego at a time in a way that that allows God to defeat the Azurpanapals in your life. So if you feel like you're walking under a cloud right now and you don't have the answers, let me urge you, trust and obey. If you feel like you're an outcast and you don't have any friends and the world's not friendly, helping you and you're all by yourself, just trust God and obey Him. If you're in a relationship that's going south or has gone south, and you just don't understand what to do, trust and obey. If you're having sleepless nights because you can't figure out the answers, just trust and obey. If you feel like you're in a real dry time and God's not there for you and you're all by yourself and you're crying out, wondering what to do, just trust and obey. Take the Legos and the steps in front of you and do them and trust that the project will be there. If you're in Ukraine and you're watching this and the bombs are falling around you, trust and obey. When we walk in obedience, we're walking the right path. When we walk in faith, we're walking the right path. If you're facing health issues and you don't know if this is the end, that's okay. Trust and obey. I told... uh, Pastor Jarrett, the other day, he's preaching through the last words of Christ on the cross. I said, if I knew I was going to die this afternoon, the doctor said, you've got an hour left. And I had my children and my wife around me, my loved ones around me. Do you know what I would say to them? I would say this, today, I will be with the Lord in paradise today. If if that day is at hand for you, I grieve for your family who's going to miss you. But if you're in the Lord, you've got no better news than the fact that you might be dying. Trust and obey. If you're in despair, trust and obey. If you can't walk any, just trust and obey. Got it? Okay, we've got time for one more passage out of Nachum. Shift gears. You know what a modern buzzword is? There's a real buzzword these days. It's called authentic. We want things to be 
authentic. So I was on a Zoom call about a month ago. These are not the actual people on the Zoom call. (laughs) Though I was on one last week with... um, We've had our twin granddaughters that are 19 months or 20 months old with us. One is named Lydia and the other's Abigail. And Lydia calls Abigail Abby. They're identical. I mean, they're identical. So I have Lydia with me, and we're calling Becky, who the girls, the grandkids call my wife Bibi. Okay? They can't say Becky's, but Bibi comes out. So I've got Lydia, and we're on a Zoom call with Bibi. Now, when you're on a Zoom call, it shows who you're talking to, but it also shows you in a small corner. So it's got Bibi, and it's got our granddaughter, Lydia. So she goes, Bibi, Bibi, pointing at Bibi. And then she points at herself, and Lydia says, Abby, Abby thinking she's her twin sister. She can't tell them apart. So I'm on this Zoom call, and this fella is a potential client, and he is cussing like a sailor. And Zoom call finishes, and about an hour later, I get an email from him. He says, I am so sorry. I didn't know about your religious background. I should not have spoken that way. Please accept my apologies. So I don't know what happened in that hour that he. But I emailed him back and I said, I, I, I don't ever want anybody to be anything that they're that's fake. I want you to be authentic. If that's who you are, that's who you are. The God that I worship is not going to be tricked by you, or me. If you don't want to be that, I didn't add this. I mean, but if you don't want to be that, then change who you are. But don't become someone different from me. Be authentic. Be authentic. Be real. Nahum 2 1, the scatterers come up against you. Man the ramparts. Watch the road. Dress for battle. Collect your strength. This is a vicious passage. And if you're reading it in the English of the Hebrew, It's at least PG-13. At least. Look at this. And by the way, spoiler alert, you've been told this is PG-13. The shield of his mighty men is red. Might mean they're with blood or it might be the color. Scholars don't know. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. Again, might be blood, might be the color. Chariots come with flashing metal on the day he musters them. They've got their cypress spears. He's got his army there and all of their newfangled iron. The chariots race madly through the streets. They're rushing to and fro through the squares. They gleam like torches. (coughs) They dart like lightning. He remembers his officers. They stumble as they go. Either because they're just having trouble and they're in a hurry or they might be drunk. Scholars differ. They hasten to the wall. The siege tower is set up. The river gates are open. The palace melts away. Its mistress is stripped. She's carried off. 
Her slave girls are lamenting, moaning like doves, beating their breasts. He's just taking the women who are secure in the castle. Nineveh's like a pool whose water runs away. Halt, halt, they cry, but nobody's turning back. They plunder the silver. They plunder the gold. There's no end of the treasure or the wealth of all the precious things. Desolate, desolation and ruin. Their hearts melt. Their knees tremble. Anguish is in their loins. Their faces grow pale. The lion's den where they kept those lions for the king to slay. The feeding place of the young lions where the lion and lioness went. The cubs that nobody was supposed to disturb. The lions tore enough for his cubs. He strangled prey for the lionesses. He's filled his case. He's out. He's eating all of the people. The king of Assyria can't do anything about it. I'm against you, declares the Lord of hosts. I'll burn your chariots in smoke. The sword's going to devour you like young lions. I'm going to cut your prey from the earth. The voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. Woe to the bloody city full of lies and plunder. No end to the prey. They can crap the, crack the whip, rumble the wheel, gallop the horses, and all the rest. But you're going to have hosts of slain, hosts of corpses, Dead bodies piled up without end, stumbling over the bodies, all for the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and of deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whorings. I'm against you. I'm going to lift your skirt over your face. Ultimate humiliation. That's, that's for men. I'll make nations look on your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. I'll throw filth at you. I'll treat you with contempt. I'll make you a spectacle. All you who look will shrink and say, wasted is Nineveh. I, and it just continues. I mean, it's, it's at least peachy 13. But you know what? God's 100% authentic. He has no trouble telling it just the way it is. And there's a point for a home for me. I want to be authentic. I want to be like God. That passage that I just read to you, woe to the bloody city. Where is it? 3-1, woe to the bloody city. I got my buddy Rick Meadow down here. You stay around Rick long, you'll hear Yiddish. One of his Yiddish phrases, whoa, 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 whoa. Can't miss Rick. Oi, man. Yiddish. Oi. Yes, Yiddish. The Hebrew is hoy, means woe, oy vey, woe is me, oy vey. Very common Yiddish expression. Right, Rick? You want to say it? Oy vey. <laughs> um, very common British expression. You've got the Hebrew with a twist here, because this Hebrew says hoy ear. Whoops. Hoy, ear, means woe, not to me, to the city. Hoy, ear, woe to the city. Woe to the bloody city full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey. The city is fallen apart. This is when it's in the height of power. And it happens. And Babylon conquers Nineveh. It happens in this whole beautiful city is destroyed. And there were locks to the river that channeled part of the river through the city for the hanging gardens. Those hanging gardens are just beautiful and famous. 
All of this is destroyed. The locks are busted open. The whole city's destroyed. I mean, it's, it, it is wrecked. And the ruthlessness of that king is repaid by God Almighty. Behold, I'm against you. I'll lift the skirts over your face. I'll make nations look at your nakedness. Your kingdom's at shame. I'll throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. So, one more point for home. Whoops. Let me, let me add this, though. No one should mistakenly believe that the kind and loving God will look the other way when people practice deceit, injustice, violence, and abuse. No God, no, comma, God doesn't tolerate evil. And the promise of Scripture over and over is that evil will consume itself. Its end will never be victory but utter defeat. That came from um, my pen. It's going into the next devotional book, but I, I can't improve on the words, so I just went in and stuck it up there. I believe that fully, and it's our final point for home. We need to seek God's will on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus taught us to pray that. But we need to do that. We need to live that way. We can live with kindness and love and compassion. We can leave vengeance to the Lord because he will take care of it. He will repay. We need to be cultivating kindness and love. And it starts right here. And then it blossoms out. And that's the best we can do. As we trust and obey. Makes sense. I don't have a chance to visit with people after class. I'm sorry about that. I want to bless you in the name of the Lord, and I've got to hit the door. But may God bless you richly. David Capes will be teaching on Zechariah next week. I'll be back in two weeks, God willing, and I'm looking forward to speaking and teaching with you again. Father, in the name of Jesus, I ask your blessings on all who hear this message. Lord, may we get a grander view of you and the sweeping breadth of your work in history. And then may we live our day-to-day history in your will, trusting you to take care of things as we walk in obedience. We pray this in your holy name, by the strength of your spirit. Amen.